All right, can I get you guys to stand? I'm going to read scripture this morning before we let these kiddos go. All right, I'm in Matthew 6, um, chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Moving to verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have not received, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty um, phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray right now as um, Justin comes up to speak with us that you open our hearts, God, um, to your word, to your truth. Um, Thank you that we get to be here and gather together together. to learn more about you, Jesus, and how much you love us. Um, Thank you. In your precious name, amen. Kiddos, come on. Good morning. If somebody were to, oh, uh, before I get into that, just so you know, we are going to be done here for during this time at 1030 because we want to provide that um, time afterwards for the covenant community. So there will be a break between those times, but at 10.30 we're going to be done, so this is going to be a nice, short, condensed time uh, as we do two things this morning. One, look, start to look at what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, and what does it mean to be a people of prayer and as we're formed by prayer. So, if I were to ask you the question, what is the good life? What would you say? Peace, food? Those are different. A piece of food may be close, but not necessarily the same. What else? What is the good life? If you were to listen to the radio, and if you were to uh, just turn on a television or a Netflix show, how would they define the good life? Prosperity, money. I'll let you say that one three times fast. Like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Um, so, it, but at the end of the day, every single person has and is wrestling with what is the good life. If you go back 2,500 years, this is um, Greek philosophers to modern-day pop artists, everybody has been trying to ask the question, what is a life that is good, that is worthy to be lived? As the philosophers said, what is a virtuous life? What is the good life? And if I were to not only ask you the question, but if I were to then go and ask Jesus the question, what would he say? And if you were to look at the Bible and say, where would you go to ask, not only ask the question, but answer the question, what does Jesus say is the good life? The place that we would want to go is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be, over the next extended period of time, going into the Sermon on the Mount. And when we think of the good life, the way that we found and I found it to be useful is the idea of human flourishing. 
The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for what it means to flourish, to thrive, to excel as human beings in his kingdom. And so as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, we're also going to be emphasizing prayer. So the Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 5 of Matthew. And because we're going to be focusing on prayer, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer over the next uh, probably 10 or so weeks. As we go there, though, I want us to quickly get a lay of the land on what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And then also ask the question, what does it mean to be formed by Jesus in the midst of prayer? So there's four different things that we're going to see over and over again in Jesus' vision of human flourishing in the midst of the kingdom of God. The first one is what I'll call vertical and horizontal. It's the, the vision for human flourishing has elements that are vertical and horizontal. These are, there are two important contexts for which Jesus is speaking into in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important to understand these. The first one is the Jewish story. As we will see, Jesus is over and over presented as the better Moses or the, the better law or the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus is speaking into the story of God, the reality that the creator God of heaven and earth created all humanity, all of creation, and he created it all good. Human beings rebelled against God, chose their own ways, chose to believe a lie about God rather than the truth about God, uh, truth about God and then walked out in sinful rebellion against this creator God. The story goes that for over and over, God has been trying to bring back his people. He chooses a man named Abraham, that through the, his family, the whole world would be blessed. He redeems them out of slavery, as the story goes, in Egypt. And over and over again, this is the God that pursues them and has promised somebody to come and ultimately redeem them from the broken kingdom and the horrible rule that is Rome in their eyes. So you have the Jewish story. Think of it like a train. You have one track. The second track is the idea of this being a Greek culture. Jesus, Jesus is in a time where the, in the Greco-Roman Empire where Greece has had a significant role in the understanding of what it means to be human. The virtuous life. So that teaching of the philosophers has played a significant role in what the people are talking about during the day and how they are choosing to live their lives. So you have the Judeo story, the Jewish story on one hand and the Greek philosophy on the other, and Jesus is speaking into both of these. And the vertical and the horizontal answers both of those ideas. The vertical is the reality that what, how can you get human flourishing? How can you and your friends and your neighbors flourish and thrive as human beings? The vertical is a reality that flourishing does not happen apart from communion with God the Father because of the work of Jesus. You and I and all people cannot flourish as people unless we're in right relationship with God the Father. You and I cannot be in right relationship with God the Father 
apart from the work of Jesus. His life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. If you and I are going to be connected to the source of life, then we need to be in communion and relationship and right standing before God the Father. But that's not enough. To flourish also has a horizontal perspective. It means that you and I have to walk out, practice, and obey the life's the life and teaching of Jesus. And that's done empowered by the Spirit and in His kingdom community. So yes, we're in right relationship with God the Father because of Jesus. And now it also means this is the way that you are supposed to live. Flourishing has a design by which God created it to be done. And we need the Spirit of God to do it. And we cannot do it alone. Flourishing requires community. Flourishing requires relationship. Now, so I want to ask you a question, and I want to actually hear some responses. So we have vertical relationship with God the Father, horizontal, living out the life and teaching of Jesus in community. What happens if you take one of those away? What happens if you only have one or the other? Okay, yeah, you're a separatist, you, you remove yourself from and you just have the vertical, but you're not living out the practice of loving your enemies, as we'll see in Sermon on the Mount. What else? You can't. Well, people try, though. <laughs> you can't do it well, so what's missing if, you don't, if you're missing a part of it? Accountability, what will that produce? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you'll, you'll want to live out your selfish desires without that. What else? Go ahead. Oh. Yes. So that's the living the horizontal without the vertical. Go and do these things. Go obey Jesus. But on whose strength and by whose power? It's my own, right? I can, I can do this. I can love my enemies as myself. Watch me. Have fun with that one by yourself, right? It, it's the teachings of Jesus. It's obeying him. And yet it doesn't have the source in communion with God the Father. Are you going to say something? Okay, give me an example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you either become uh, no earthly good because you're only here, right? Your idols become the things of God, not God himself, like the Bible, 
there's, that's very, very capable. Our hearts are idol factories, as one reformer said. We can make good things God things. So the vision of human flourishing needs both. And we're going to see this throughout. We're going to see Jesus always go back to the Father. Three times in this very passage, or two times at least, and then one time next, he talks about God being our Father. In a couple weeks, we'll get to see why that's significant. That's the vertical. But these are the things that you have. Jesus calls us to obey in his kingdom. Okay? So that's first thing. The second thing that we're going to see over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount and what it means to have human flourishing is that why is as important as what? Why is as important as what? We're going to see Jesus teach people over and over again, this is what you're supposed to do. As we see in this passage in a moment, you've seen them do it this way. Don't do it like that. Do it this way. But when he does that, he doesn't just say that's enough. He goes to the next level and, and is focused on the whole person discipleship. What it means to be faithful. What it means to be dependent upon God at the heart level. The kingdom of God is not just concerned about what you do. It's just as concerned about why you do it. You and I can do good things with bad motivations, and it can still be sinful. Just because you obey doesn't mean you are obeying. You can walk certain things out and, and follow it without the vertical, without understanding why you're doing what you're doing. As we'll see in the example today around prayer, these people were praying. They were doing what they were supposed to do, but they were doing it with bad motivations. And what does Jesus say? Don't do it like that. He, can, he cares about why the heart just as much, um, excuse me, he cares about the why just as much as he does the what. So vertical, horizontal, this is going to be important in the Sermon on the Mount. Why your heart level of uh, your motives in the midst of living this out. The third aspect of the Sermon on the Mount is the reality that this kingdom is upside down. It is an upside-down kingdom. Every time you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you can imagine hearing, being the first century listener of this sermon, you would be like, that is not what I expected him to say. It's shocking. It doesn't make sense. It's against the way in which most people assume that the world is supposed to be. You are not supposed to love your enemies according to the world. And what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. The, it doesn't matter why you do things in a lot of people's eyes. It's just uh, the means justifies the end. Or the ends justifies the means. But Jesus says, no, your heart matters. We'll see for an example that in the idea of suffering, suffering is an antithesis to the good life according to the world. But in the kingdom of God, suffering is the means by which you are able to flourish in the kingdom of God. It's the means by which God accomplishes his, accomplishes his purposes in his ways. And the upside down nature of the kingdom is that it's already and not yet, as we've talked about before. We get to taste it. We get a picture of it. We get to live in this kingdom right here and right now. 
and yet we don't fully get to. If we read the scriptures and we see all the promises about the future kingdom and reign of God as if they are fully present, we'll call that over-realized eschatology for all you big word fans. What does that mean? You're assuming that you get everything right now. When the scriptures are clear that yes, the kingdom is here. Yes, you get to live it out now. Yes, we are experiencing the rule and reign of God in our midst. And yet... He has not fully come to renew and restore all of creation yet. So as we live out the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we get to experience God's reign. We get to experience what, it likes to, what it's like to follow him. And yet, we're not going to get the fullness of it until he comes back. And lastly, we're, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. If you were to go back and read Matthew in the beginning parts of Matthew, as I would encourage you to do, Matthew is really intentional in setting up Jesus in comparison to Moses. So like Moses, Jesus also had to flee because a ruler was going about killing all the people under a certain age. Like Moses, Jesus also ended up in Egypt. Like Moses, Jesus also came up onto a mountain to teach his disciples a way of life. So for the first century Jew, Moses was one of the pinnacle, one of the, the heroes of the faith. And what Matthew is doing is, is coming alongside and saying, actually, Jesus is greater than that. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses spoke about. Jesus is the one that, and we'll see in the, in the passages, he's the fulfillment of all that Moses taught. So Jesus is the hero of all of that. And not only in regards to Moses, but this, this sermon actually works as a table of contents of Jesus' life. As we'll see, when we, we, he talks about prayer, what does Matthew do throughout the, the book? He starts to show us how Jesus goes about fulfilling that. What does it mean to love your enemies? Matthew goes and shows us how Jesus would do that. Jesus himself practiced what he preached. Jesus himself did the very things that he taught us to do. So it wasn't like, oh, Jesus taught these things, cool. It's now... Yes, he taught them, but he also fulfilled them in his own life. That's the connection to the horizontal part of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is what the sermon teaches us. This is what it means to have a flourishing life. This is Jesus' vision of what it means to live in his kingdom. Now the question is, how do we get there? Great, we have these teachings. Great, we have this... That we, all, we have this more stuff that we have to go about doing. As Aubrey mentioned, this year, uh, we're really wanting to focus on what does it mean to flourish. But not just from a teaching perspective, not just on Sundays, but as we'll talk about in the Covenant Community Meeting, along our disciple, as disciples of Jesus, as uh, missional communities, and then what does it mean to continually see the, the kingdom and people, other people learn to flourish as, as witnesses. I want to focus on the discipleship part of it for a second. 
for us to flourish like Jesus showed us, you and I need to be formed by Jesus. It's not enough for us to hear what we're supposed to do and then go do it. If you think that you've read the Sermon on the Mount before and you've got it all figured out, we're missing something. We need to be formed. Uh, Corinthians has this picture of us being jars of clay. That God is the ultimate craftsman and we are his workmanship, as Ephesians says. And he's forming us into what he desires for us to look, which is ultimately like Jesus in the unique way that he's called us. For centuries, this has been called spiritual formation or means of grace um, or spiritual disciplines. These are ways in which the people of God, in line with what Jesus has taught, have learned to put us in an environment where God can actually form us. And I'm going to be vulnerable for a second here. For so long, in the movement that we find ourselves in, we have kind of pushed aside these disciplines. And what I mean of them is uh, prayer, reading of the scripture, what I'll call the slow-down disciplines of silence, solitude, and Sabbath. Uh, This is worship. This is fasting. Things that put us in the environment where the Spirit of God can actually work in us so that from that place, we can then go and do what Jesus has taught us to do. So what we're not going to do is say, hey, here's the life and teachings of Jesus. Go and do it. That would call you to failure, and we don't want to do that. We, although we do want to call us to that, we know that we need, as God's people, to right that wrong and say, no, we need to be formed by God. We need to be changed by God. We need our hearts to be different, not just our actions to be different. And so the, for the first few months of this year... We're going to be be emphasizing the spiritual discipline, the means of grace of prayer. What does it mean to pray? How do you pray? If you were to make a disciple of somebody, how would you show them to pray? Do you have tools and are you equipped to know, here's how you pray. Will you come and pray and join me in prayer? So we're going to be, Justin is going to be, uh, other Justin is going to be teaching on that, and we're going to be creating resources so that you, and giving you opportunities to practice different types of prayer over the next few months. We're going to be providing opportunities for you to join others in prayer so that you can grow as a disciple who's not only presenting your requests before God in prayer, believing that God actually cares and desires that, but also allowing you to be put in a place where God can speak to you, where you can hear the voice of the Spirit, where you can be changed in what he wants you to become. All that to say, what does Matthew 6 have to show us about prayer? And as we focus on formation, as we focus on prayer, real briefly, Matthew 6 and verses 5 through 8 particularly, 
in the midst of showing us the ways of Jesus, this is focusing on the practice of prayer. And he rebukes two different groups of people. Simply put, in his rebuke, what he's doing is challenging their why. Why they were going about prayer. Two different groups that he does this to. First, the hypocrites, and secondly, the Gentiles. The hypocrites, what they would do, these, are, these were probably like the Pharisees. They were corporate um, prayer times that would happen throughout the day in Jewish culture. And so they would organize their lives about around these where everybody would get and pray, they would make sure that they were in a place of prominent position so that other people would watch them pray. They were not concerned about praying to God. They were concerned about their why was, I want other people to know that I'm a praying person. Look at me. Look how righteous I am. And I want to get myself in an opportunity where we can see the focus can be on me. The Gentiles prayed in a certain way so that they could be heard by the gods. They, in essence, had to pester them. They had to annoy them. And the more that they prayed, the more that they spoke, the, um, they thought they would be heard by their many words. So if they went on and on and on, they would be heard better. And what Jesus is saying is, no, don't pray like either one of those. If your focus on being a praying person is so that other people know you as a praying person, that's your reward. That's the, that's the most it's going to get, Jesus goes about saying. And what's the better reward? Is that you get to commune and be with God the Father. What's, if the hypocrite, excuse me, if the Gentiles... If their reward was that other people would know them as prayers or that the gods would be appeased by their actions, for them the counteraction is that, no, God is your Father, as it says in verse 9 of this. Our Father in heaven, as Jesus shows us to pray. So the focus on this prayer and what I want you to ask yourself as we enter into this time and focus of prayer, is why do you pray? Why do you pray? Not what the right answer is, but why do you personally take the time to pray? That's assuming that you are taking the time to pray. So if you don't take time to pray, why don't you? Are there fears about how God views you, that if you get in a relationship with him, he's going to rebuke you over and over and over again. Do you pray so that you can be known as a praying person? Are you praying so that only things that you pray are what you want, rather than asking your will be done on earth as it in heaven? What is your prayer life like right now, as you take stock of it, the beginning of January? And then I want you to ask the question, what do you want it to be like? Are you content with how you commune with God the Father because of Jesus? Are you hearing his voice regularly? Is, are there times where you have concentrated um, energy and effort with God in prayer that is fueling 
you to be able to hear the voice of the Spirit on a regular basis. You want to be empowered and led by the Spirit? You want to be able to hear what God wants you to do in any given moment of any, every given day? Well, I would encourage you to say, okay, how is that time where you're actually getting to know the Father's heart? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you listening for God's heart? And are you allowing him to form you into the person of Jesus? Now, if you don't know how to, as I said next week, you're gonna, we're going to start to lay out some tools so that you can learn how to. You may be in a rut. Well, we're gonna, we, wanna, we will be providing monthly resources for you to try different types of prayer. You don't, you've never prayed out loud in front of a group of people. Wherever you are, this is where you are. We want to come alongside and not grow as a church that prays so that other people will know us as a praying church. But because if we're called to live the life and live on mission that Jesus called us to, and we're not come doing that out of a source of realizing how much God the Father loves us, we will burn out. And my fear is that many of us are already there. Go live on mission. Go do this. Go do that. Go read all. And it's not coming from a place of communing with God. Yes, those things are good. Yes, we should live that out. And if it's not sourced because we truly believe how much Jesus loves us and how much he's extended grace to us, if it's not found in that, in the person and work of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf, how much the Father views you out of love and desire for you, not trying to, not needing to be pestered, not needing to be um, thwarted into by your right actions, but be, he he fully loves you because you are now in Christ. That is the source for how we are to live. And we need to emphasize being placed in an environment where God can change us so we can actually live that out. So why do you pray? Where do you want your prayers to be? And with that, I want to invite you to the table. And the table is our regular reminder being put in an environment where we can remember what Jesus has done for us. All that I said means kaputs. If Jesus did not live a perfect life, did not die sacrificially and in substitution for our sins, and if he did not raise from the dead victorious over our greatest enemies. It means nothing. And so we go to the table to remember that we now have access to God the Father. We now can be formed by God the Father. We can now be empowered by the Spirit to live in, his, in the ways of Jesus because of what Jesus did on your behalf. So as you go to the table, I want you to remember that. Remember that I'm taking of the bread and the juice or wine as a, as a time to, of what Jesus did on my behalf. And... Asking, and I want you to have a conversation with one another about those two questions. Why do you pray, and what do you want your prayer life to be? What do you, what do you desire it to be, and how, 
and just get together, smaller groups like we normally do, three or four people so that everybody has an opportunity to share briefly. If you are have no one to take with, I will be happy to be up here with you. Community is an opportunity for those that have, of us that have professed faith in Jesus. We're doing this to remember the Lord's death. So if you've placed your faith in the saving work of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, forgiving you of your sins and becoming the source of your greatest satisfaction as only he can be, we invite you to the table. If you're not there yet, that's totally okay. If you're just kicking the tires, we want you to welcome you. Don't feel any pressure to take this. This is for those of us that have professed faith. If you have questions, myself or one of us would love to have that conversation about what this actually means. So let me pray invite you to the table, take the elements, get in those groups, share, and then I'll pray to close this out, and then we'll, um, for those of us that will be in the covenant community meeting, we can go to, towards that. Father, thank you that you are pleased with us because we are in Christ. Father, thank you that you look at those of us that have professed faith and you see children. You see the be beloved ones. And God, all that is true because of what you've done for us. Thank you that your body was broken. As, as we look forward to Easter in the coming months, Good Friday remind, reminds us of your broken body, the, the pain and, that you went through for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you did that. Thank you that your body was broken, your blood was shed, and we come to the table with one another as a reminder and to remember that. God, I pray that you help us gospel one another in this time. Point us to Jesus, that our prayer life doesn't determine whether we are worthy before you. What determines that we're worthy is that Jesus died on our behalf and rose again. And so, God, I pray that your love for us will fuel what you call us to, that you continue to use these times to form us so that we can more fully reflect the image of Jesus to a, a falling and broken world. So, Father, I pray that you speak through your people to one another as we go to the table. In Jesus' name, amen. You are invited to the table.